HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm, a sustainable pasture-based dairy farm. For more information, visit considerbardwellfarm.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, and when I am not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at one of our restaurants, Del Anima, Lartuzzi, La Picha, or Anfora Wine Bar. And uh, for this summer, I want to announce here that we'll be returning with Alta Linea, um, which is a summer-long outdoor pop-up at the Highline Hotel, which will focus on Italian aperitivo. We'll have frozen Negronis uh, back again this year. Uh, we actually sold 9,100 of them last year in five months. Um, uh, hopefully, we'll break uh, we'll break 10,000, maybe. Uh, but there'll be all sorts of great uh, Italian aperitivi, like uh, lots of vermouths, Campari, Aperol, Chinar. There's great Contrato uh, uh, spirits that I've been really excited about. And then uh, a bunch of my favorite, actually a smallness of my favorite Italian wines. Uh, it's a great place to be out, so outside this summer, uh, just drinking some wine, maybe a little cocktail, and some great food. Um, uh, I also want to say if, uh, thank you so much for tuning in. This uh, airs live every Wednesday, 10 a.m. for those of you who listen live. If you don't listen live, you can always listen to our previous episodes on heritageradionetwork.org um, or subscribe on iTunes and get those uploaded directly every week. Um, all right. Today, I have a special guest, a, a rare uh, return guest, but this is someone who is a friend of mine and who is always doing um, cool things. Uh, we have Alice Firing in the studio. Alice is a wine journalist based here in New York. She's written uh, several books previously, including Naked Wine, Letting Grapes Do What Comes Naturally, and The Battle for Wine and love, or how I save the world from parkerization. But today we are going to talk about her new book, For the Love of Wine, My Odyssey Through the World's Most Ancient Wine Culture. Um, welcome to the studio, Alice. 
Thanks. It's great to be here and see you. Uh, I've also missed you. Um, you. You also do the the firing line, which is your website, and um, you contribute to multiple publications. What what else? What else are you working? Well, with? actually, it's um, I've been focusing mostly on the newsletter. There's okay. the firing line blog, and then there's the firing line newsletter, which is a paid subscription newsletter that comes out uh, seven to eight times a year. A little short nine-pager that's dense with all sorts of things that if you're into natural wine, you need to know. Yes, and I know I've, I've found lots of great information when doing staff trainings uh, for, for my own personal use uh, from, from your writing, so you. uh, I, I, I'm a fan, to, to say the least. Um, this current book that, uh, that you're releasing now, um, I think it's maybe fair to say that, you're, that it's based on Georgian wine and uh, your first experience in Georgia, we kind of shared together. We I had a, a really fun trip back in 2011. Um, um, to the country of Georgia for their first annual Quevery Symposium. Right, and there is indeed a chapter about that entry into the country, though I did leave out how I almost killed you because I was terrified we were going to miss the plane. <laughs> would have been my fault, but we made it. We, we made it. It was like, I miraculous. Think, actually, I should have put that in the book because, you know, there, there are a lot of things that if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And there was no way we weren't going to be in Georgia. There was just no way that wasn't going to happen. And so I should have just allowed myself to relax into it and accept we were going to be there. Right. Yeah, I was running. It was really fun. I was running pretty, pretty late. <laughs> the for, gods are with us. Yeah. And then we spent a great day in Munich. It was Munich. amazing. Oh, Munich. Yeah. And actually that whole thing, and even though at first it was a 10-hour layover, now there are better options to be able to go to Georgia so you don't have to have this onerous 10-hour layover and then arrive at 4 o'clock in the the morning. But that was a wonderful day that we had. It was great. I loved having that layover with you guys. Yeah. And with Justin right. from uh, Four Horsemen was, and several vine selections. He yeah. was really fun. It was very fun. The great lunch. We were just exploring. So I had a great experience in Georgia. I love the people, love the food, and of course love the wines mm-hmm. and put these wines on our wine list at, at Amphora. Um, but it sounds like it affected you even way more than it did me. Uh, you, you've been back many times and written this book about it. What what was it? What did you? What spoke to you so much about that trip? Well, in a way, the wine spoke to me before I ever got there. Mm-hmm. Um, from the first taste of, and it was um, Carrie Smith, who, when my first book was released in two thousand eight, brought me a, a Kisi from Vino Terra, and I was very intrigued then. But what? was it it just all seemed so familiar it just seemed like um well besides loving the wine being crazy about the food i just felt i was someplace as, as exotic as fez but without the donkeys and there was something about the people that just almost seemed like walking prophets and they are they're unedited uh, the georgian nature is extremely emotional and I think that it's one of the few places in the world that I don't feel like I'm too emotional because everybody else outdoes me. So I feel sane there. Maybe that's it. That I just had to go back and feel sanity once more. Wow. And so the, in the time before you went on the trip, you had tasted this wine. But what was your uh, kind of general Georgia experience or, or knowledge at, at that point? At that point, it was pretty um, pretty minimal. And shortly after, in 
2009, I went to this Georgian wine tasting in New York, and mm-hmm. I was pretty disgusted because most of the wines were modern wines. Was Cabernet Merlot, Chardonnay? Yeah, great, huh? There are 525 plus indigenous wine grapes in this country, and they're showing me Chardonnay. I was like, okay, this this country's done for. Then it was Chris Terrell who sent over some pheasants tears. They did not travel well, but there was something there. It was an emotional okay. wine. Then I think, and that, that had to be one of the first vintages of pheasants tears was. as well. And I think they've, those wines have, have continued to get better yeah, and better every year, better and better. And up to the last two vintages are knockouts. They're really beautiful. Yeah. We, we don't have the most recent in this country yet. It's, they're fabulous. But the thing that really connected to me was this almost religious feeling about the naturalness of wine. And given how I've spent the past 16 years of writing almost exclusively about natural wine, and now that obviously natural wine is everywhere, we don't even really call it natural wine anymore. It's just good wine. Mm -hmm. But here was a country that they were on the border of there were all these people making wine naturally, naturally, just because that is the way they do it. And they were on the precipice. Either they make a living from their wine or the other people who were chomping at the bit to get Georgian money to sell them reverse osmosis and you know all sorts of you know physical and chemical technology to become more modern. So I just wanted I guess I kind of made a pact that I would do as much as I could to bring them enough attention so they knew that what they were doing had an audience and it wasn't old fashioned mm-hmm. and it wasn't out of date and it was actually extremely current. And so these producers that um making wine in this very ancient mm-hmm. style without using the chemicals and the kind of modern trickery um that wasn't that wasn't everyone in Georgia, right? There are certainly many producers who were making sort of industrial wine for for the Russian market, or right. once that mm-hmm. closed off mm-hmm. for you know for export um, export market. Do the producers that you get excited about that I get excited mm-hmm. about? Do they what do they think of that part of the Georgian? Is that like a different thing to them? It's a different a, product entirely? Totally. Totally. It's a, I think that on the governmental level, they're a little bit more sensitive about it. But on the grower level, that there's, it's just a different kind of wine, and they, they are not in competition. First of all, most people, there are some exceptions, but most people don't make more than 2,000 bottles. Mm. It's not very much. 2,000, maybe 3,000 bottles. So they're really not in competition with the people who are maybe almost as big as Gallo and making wine in really, really conventional ways. But I think that we should go back to just describe the traditional method of making wine in Georgia. Yes, I think it's a good idea. I think that is, I always forget what people don't know, and most people don't know that the traditional way of making wine in Georgia is in something called quevery, which is a very specific kind of amphora which is very egg-shaped. It's either reaching in clean or jumping in clean. It can be huge or basically the size of a vase. And these are planted into the ground, so you have very basic, wonderful, natural temperature control. The white wines are made like red wines, so orange wine, what we now call orange wine, is the, is the, um, you know, the staple, basically, is... 
there is just what you get used to in amber-colored wine there. There are some wines made without skin contact that are very fresh and almost muscadet-like. These are also traditional wines. But for the most part, since they're making wine without the protection of sulfur, the white wines get this protection from being on the skin. They are on the skins really long time. So conventional winemaking, you just press the wine off the skin very quickly and start fermenting it. Here, you crush the grapes. A lot of times they stomp it in a hollowed-out log. It flows into the quivery. They get the fermentation going, stops fermenting. They seal up the quivery with clay, with a clay lid. And it stays there between four and eight months with the skins. That's a long time. That's a long time. That's a long time. That's longer than any red wine is made. Exactly. And much longer than these producers in Western Europe who are making skin macerated right. white wines. So they're usually one week to one month, right? Right. And then often they come out of the Anfora, whatever, the Tinaja, and then they put them into oak or concrete. But these go directly from the quivery when they're ready to be bottled into into the bottle. And a lot of the times they're hand bottled. So interesting. And we, you know, we were joking when we were there about how funny it is that there's this first annual (laughs) convention, um, just based on the sheer history, the, the length of time that they've been making wine. When the Etruscans introduced wine to central Italy in about 600 BC and the Greeks brought wine to southern Italy, Magna Graecia, about the same time, uh, Italy was wine wasn't made in the peninsula of Italy before that, from what we can mm-hmm. tell, neither in France nor in Spain. Uh, it was kind of brought that way. In Georgia, they'd been making it for like three or 4,000 years already. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty remarkable how how much, well, how it predates everything. Everything. Like at least somewhere in that world back then, the borders weren't borders, mm-hmm. you know. But you know, when you think that okay, the world's first winemaker, if we believe it, is Noah. Mount Ararat is right in that vicinity, so that it really goes back a long way. And and clay obviously was the first vessel, and we had clay was the first mm-hmm. man-made. So this current iteration of traditional wine, if you can think of it that yes. way, that you know, aged in amphora for six months for, mm-hmm. for white wines um, and, and that, that sort of style and the skins, how long have they been making it in that style? Is that, is that the ancient way it would, it would have been made four, five, six thousand years ago? Or, or that, would that have been different? Well, probably the most ancient way was that it just fermented on the vine and then you eat the fermented grapes and then you got drunk and you went, oh, let's figure out how to control this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So probably as soon as they figured out how to make a pot... And I don't actually, which probably was about 8,000 years ago. 8,000 And then they've been making it this way. Yeah, it's pretty. There has been very little. There, there, I mean, you see some, some pictures, you know, some, you know, pictures on pottery shards that it's, and it's really is the simplest way, which is, uh, I, God, you know, it's like how I guess what, that did, had to be. Do you get any sense that they were like the ancient Romans, where they would like flavor their wine in the? Do they speak about that at all? Like, or there were no flavorings. There are no flavors. So this, when you taste a traditionally made Georgian wine from one of the five hundred plus indigenous grapes, this is really like pretty much the closest you can get to yeah. tasting something that was made thousands of years ago. Exactly. Well, what we see from 
you know old scratchings you know from from Roman times Greek times that and from all the research that's been done they were making wine above the ground they were making wine in in amphora which was actually used for a transportation vessel mm-hmm. vessel so it was not temperature controlled so their wine was spoiling very very quickly and so you really needed those flavorants but in Georgia with temperature control the right. wine could last for ever as wine Right. Yeah. And I mean, the Roman Empire is so big and there's a lot of shipping of wine. Right. Um, and it even sometimes use olive oil to exactly. protect from the oxidation. But if you have that long skin maceration, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about it as much. You don't. And I've had some pretty old Georgian wine, not thousands of years old, obviously. But they last for a really long time. They really have a, a structure that can keep on going and you know like anything with grape tannins really just sweeten up and develop quite beautifully interesting i have to think they're healthier too not just in the so. in the la- the less chemicals and but you're getting that antioxidant property from the skin right at least that's what i tell myself when i'm drinking <laughs> okay on that note we're going to take just a quick break uh we'll be back more with alice firing and for the love of wine her story about the amazing wines of the country of georgia just after this Today's program is brought to you by Consider Bardwell Farm. Consider Bardwell Farm is a sustainable pasture-based dairy farm, making award-winning raw cow and goat's milk cheeses in a not-too-far corner of Vermont. For Consider Bardwell, sustainability means caring for the land, raising their animals well, reducing waste, and helping their community, all in the name of happy animals and people and delicious cheeses. Consider Bardwell Farm is proud to support Heritage Radio Network as part of their food and farming community and a proud sponsor of all good conversations had over great cheese. Find them at your local cheese counter, at New York City Green Markets, and online at considerbardwellfarm.com. All right. I love that Consider Bardwell uh, Dorset and the Manchester cheeses. They'd be really great with some, some Georgian orange wine. I think so. I think so as well. In fact, it's been done. Has it been done? At my house. Uh, I know it has. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'm sorry I missed out on that one. Um, you know, I, we were actually discussing a little bit between the break. I, I, I just remember uh, and uh, in Georgia, wine, at least in the part that we were in, which was Tbilisi and East in the Kakheti area, um, uh, that, that wine was kind of pervasive in the culture there. In uh, the pottery, obviously, a lot of those were wine vessels, but in, even in like the art and the architecture of churches, wine was just part of so many different things. Um, now that you've experienced the culture firsthand so in such a deeper way than, than I have, um, how do you find that? Uh, and I know you, you write about this in the, in the book as well, but can you share with us how, how wine interacts with their culture there? Well, I had the same feeling that I've never been in a place where wine was just so pervasive in every aspect. And it um, remember that Christianity was brought um, 
by Saint Nino, who that you know the story goes came from Cappadocia with her hair plaited around a cross of grapevines, and so the grapevine is in, essential to the Georgian Orthodox Church, which is essential to the character of Georgians. So it's never too far away, and there's a whole revival of monasteries making wine now, not just Oliverity. Um, you know, one one story which I think really illustrates. Well, two stories that are in the book. Um, we were, this winemaker Ramaz and I were in Racha, which is a magnificent area in the western part of Georgia, high elevation, real uh, melange of, hello, <laughs> of limestone and, and just in granite and ma- amazing soils. And we're lost and we're trying to find this winemaker. And this guy has a gate on his door we're like parked outside of his of his yard and he's got a gate with grapes and he comes out and he hears that we're looking for wine he says come in i have wine <laughs> and he tried, he just it was a total stranger and he just dragged us into his in his basement and went to his quivery and you know it's like everybody makes wine there and that is one thing that is was this excitement that this is the very first time in pretty much the history of Georgia where people could make a commercial wine mm-hmm. as an independent and not just for the Soviet state or not for the co-op. And so it's, um, anyway, it is the, another, another, so has that changed significantly since, uh, since 2011, for instance, yeah. since we first started going there, oh, yeah. so, I know just, part of it was uh, a big aid program from USAID, right. Which yeah. is, which has helped with it. Uh, I remember being, uh, startled getting into Tbilisi and turning on to George W. Bush highway. Yeah, right. <laughs> like what is uh, up with that? And he then gave them money. he gave them, uh, why? I don't know, but a lot of money. Uh, from my understanding, the president or the prime ministers very favored the the West and was even educated at Columbia. Yes, well, so, the past president, the past president, who was living in Williamsburg for a while before he went back went to the Ukraine. Crazy. Yeah, I know it is crazy. Um, but since we were there in 2011, when there were maybe about eight or nine people working this way. Commercially, there are now about 45 small producers that um, are making wine and selling it, at least commercially, in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And as far as internationally, probably about 25. Wow. So before, there were all these producers who were just doing it for their themselves and their exactly. family. And they were maintaining this tradition, but it was just like a very, very local sort of thing. Right. And now we have... 25 exporting, 45 who yeah. are actually bottling and, and making these and traditional. And it's just, I mean, every other day, because it's like if somebody was making very good home wine, then they start making it a little bit commercially, mm-hmm. and then they start. And it's it, it really is quite remarkable, because there are so many winemakers making pilgrimages now to see how the Georgians work. And I remember one of my visits, Marie Lapierre was there doing a vintage and she's like, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. I mean, it's so simple. And people are going, like it was Thierry Puzla. And that's a, that's a producer that doesn't do a lot right. either. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. Thierry Puzla said that I, he used to think he made a wine that really was minimalist. Uh, people are understanding really what it means to make a wine without ego involvement. 
mm-hmm. which is quite extraordinary. Um, there is a tremendous passion. So in Miskati, which is, well, these are words that don't mean anything, near Ajara, which is down near the Turkish border, winemaking had been virtually wiped out, almost wiped out in the 1400s. And um, say the 1400s? Yeah, the 1400s. <laughs> I was in some sort of time warp there. And they still remember it as if it was yesterday. You know, that this kind of... But there have always been people um, trying to preserve the wild grapes. Mm-hmm. And so when I was there, I saw several people who had basically had been capturing the wild grapes, making their own little botanical resource. And now that's whole being revitalized. It's really in their blood to go back to that that story. Yeah. About. And we had uh, one of the stories that I, I do want to ask you to tell us a little bit about was uh, your 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 trip to your trip there on Yom Kippur. Yeah. Um, and you went to visit Yago, who's a producer that we visited, and they had a. Uh, I, I remember really fondly. It, it's just an amazing experience where he had kept this wine in amphora uh, for six months waiting for our arrival. I, I, I think that was a story that he knew we were coming or uh, the idea is that you open it when you have a special reason to open it. And it was an emotional experience for him. He hadn't tasted this wine in a half a year. Um, unlike, you know, Western winemakers, you can you taste it every week and a lot of good right. winemakers do to make sure things are exactly. going well, you know? Um, and to to experience that with him w- was amazing, and uh, you've you've since formed a relationship with him, and mm-hmm. he he now has uh, he exports his wine. Yeah. Uh, tell us about what it was like being there on a Jewish holiday. Well, it was uh, it was a bit of a, a dicey situation in 2012. Uh, they my book Naked Wine was translated into Georgian and they really wanted me to be there for a book presentation and it was like great, fine and it was like, but it's going to be the day after Yom Kippur and as a lapsed Orthodox Jew Yom Kippur is just not negotiable for me you know, I may not do much else but that is a day that is just totally off, off the grid and the idea of being out of the country really hadn't occurred to me like, what would I do? And, and John Werdeman said, you know, we've got Jews here, and we could get you a hotel right near you know, the shul in Tbilisi. And and so I said, okay. You know, so I said, that's fine. And then I needed a place to break my fast. And I said, I want to go to Yago's. <laughs> so that, that chapter is uh, Yom wow. Kippur and Chinuri. John, John Werdeman, he is very resourceful. He is very resourceful. It was really great. So he picked me up and... You know, we picked Nikki Antadza up, and we went. We just had a wonderful meal. It was a long time before I got there, so basically I broke my fast at about 10 p.m., drinking chinure and cha-cha and his wife and mother's gorgeous food. It was a very—it was the best breakfast that I ever had. Amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. And uh, for those of you who don't know, John Wordman is an American living in Georgia. Um, my ex- first experience with Georgian wine was— uh, uh, John walking into an amphora with Bishop David. <laughs> Bishop. Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> um, who, if you can picture someone coming <laughs> in the West Village in a uh, floor length black I love those pictures. cloak 
a, a tall, black, pointy hat and a long beard, uh, just so uh, out of place. And even in New York, we see lots of you know interesting sights. Yeah. Um, and that that experience, and, and John, it's American who's fallen in love with with the culture and has moved there and has created quite a great life for himself there. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty, pretty amazing. Has John been someone who's been instrumental in helping you? Well, John, lots? well, John has been a kind of driving force behind this book because you know, he was the one who got naked wine translated mm. very much for the same reason he wanted, he wanted the winemakers who are making wine in Georgia to know that they were part of something bigger. And that book actually had been very influential and very moving for me to find out, to meet people who say to me, I read your book and I realized that I could do this. And so they revitalized a grandfather's and great-grandfather's way of making wine and, you know, doing it because of the book. And then he said, we need an Alice kind of book about Georgia. And he really, really pushed. And at first I didn't really see how... It could happen, and I. He arranged for me to do a small promotional book for the Georgian government, and like it was about seventy pages. It was called Skin Contact, and I thought, okay, I can do this. Um, the Georgian government did not censor me; they allowed me to do total narrative, um, telling stories, and it was that served as my proposal for this book. So in a way, John was totally responsible for pushing me in this direction. This, it's safe to say, if it wasn't for John Werdeman of Pheasant's Tears, this book would not have been written, I wow. think. <laughs> well, uh, I think the whole uh, curious wine world thanks you, John, very much. And thanks you so much, Thank Alice. Uh, congratulations on this just beautiful book. Um, uh, for the Love of Wine, My Odyssey Through the World's Most Ancient Wine Culture. Go out and get it. Uh, Alice is a uh, unique uh, uh, expert on these wines uh, and a great writer. And so uh, I definitely recommend you guys to go out out and get this book. Um, Also, just a reminder about Alice's newsletter, the Firing Line newsletter, um, worth signing up for. Uh, I give my approval to that. (laughs) Uh, And I just want to thank everyone here at uh, Heritage Radio Network, to Aaron Fairbanks, Jack Inslee, Alison Hamill, and everyone in the office, and to our engineer, our new-ish engineer the last few weeks, David Tadashore. You are the man. Thank you for uh, for putting the show together on a weekly basis. And thanks, you guys, for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. For listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.